Welcome to Chapter 4 of the Jesus Adventure, a study in the spirituality training system of Jesus of Nazareth. In this chapter, the first chapter of the second quarter, we move forward into an essential new phase, the vital cure, which is all about progressing onward on the Jesus Adventure. As always, we start by honoring and inviting God to teach us with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all creation. In your name we trust. Please guide us and increase our trust in you as we discover the vital cure provided to us by following Jesus on his adventure. Now, during his public ministry, Jesus healed people everywhere he went. Whenever someone was humble enough to ask and trust in him, Jesus was willing to heal them. He's still healing people today. He starts by healing our inner creature, the inner creature that's been broken by the soul rebellion. Then he continues by healing our other needs along the way, sometimes miraculously, but often it's very subtle as we go about doing his teachings. The most important part of this healing is the healing of our dead inner spiritual being, our inner soul, because our inner being is literally dead in a spiritual relationship to God until we have Jesus come into our lives. This is something we're not usually aware of, but it takes the Spirit to come alive in us to discern the spiritual things that we're dealing with. And every physical healing that Jesus did was a reminder that we are broken and sick, apart from the spiritual life that is given to us by the Creator. All sickness, all disease, all death is a result of the rebellion of our race having turned away from God as our Father. Indeed, all evil that mankind endures results from our rejection of the loving light of God. This rebellion has brought all kinds of horrors as we try to rule ourselves without the one who created us to be gracious living examples of life in his image. So we're picking up the adventure with the Gospel of Mark at chapter 1, verse 41, where Jesus says to a man with a dreaded crippling disease of leprosy, I am willing, be cleansed. Now what is the meaning of this? Leprosy was a terrible disease that affected the ability to feel pain, and it causes horrible blisters on the skin. Once you don't feel the pain, you don't realize when you're injuring yourself or when these blisters are forming. And lepers tend to have skin that is ravaged by sun, wind, scars, blisters, bites. They tend to burn their hands and feet accidentally. And eventually, limbs break, fingers get cut off, toes get stubbed and broken. They harm themselves because they feel no pain. So their bodies become rotted and disfigured, but they never feel a thing. There's a popular song that promotes becoming comfortably numb, but in fact, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. In this passage, we have a leper who's coming to Jesus and humbly asking Jesus with faith, If you're willing, you can make me clean. That is to say, I know that you can remove this foul, corrupting disease that is ruining me. The man is saying, I know your power is great enough that you can restore me if you're willing, Jesus. The text indicates that the leper had to completely remove all pride, be willing to be seen in public as a diseased and wretched person. The leper also had to come to the point of total conviction that Jesus had the power and authority to remove this horrible condition. His conviction came from considering God's prophetic word about who Jesus is. He says to Jesus, if you are willing. And what does Jesus say? 
I'm willing. I am willing. That's the message that Jesus has for us. I am willing. The fundamental thing to realize is that Jesus is willing. That is the point of why this miracle was recorded. And we learn through the rest of his work that Jesus was always willing to heal anyone who came to him humbly trusting him, recognizing their need for him. So whenever we humbly come to him in the manner that this leprous person did, amazing things can happen. The first amazing thing that can happen is that we can have our disease of self healed. This is the disease that came upon us at the beginning when Satan tempted Adam, saying, you can be like God. Well, the truth is that Adam was already like God. He was created in the image of God. But he listened to the temptation and fell into the pride of self that he may become equal to God. And that was the real temptation, which begins with pride. It always begins with pride. We learn that all temptation sprouts from this lust, this pride. And that comes out through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Guess which one is the root of it all? It's pride. Now, the fact that Jesus is willing to heal, to restore, to rebuild broken and ravaged people is not what we usually hear. But it was the case of every person who came to him with humble faith. Every person who stripped away their pride just enough to approach Jesus humbly received the answer they need. He made no distinction, regardless of who they were, or where they came from, or what their social status was. If they had the right attitude, the right heart, and were willing, they were humble enough to admit their need, Jesus answered and restored them. Yet there are many who did not come to him. We learn from the book of Acts that there were many in Israel who were still needing healing long after Jesus died and rose again. Why? Pride. They did not come to him while he walked the earth. It's that simple. This single event with the leper opens an entire world of insight to the heart of God that few people ever discover. We do not read a single instance of a prideful person being healed by Jesus, not a single one. We do not read a single instance of a faithless person being healed by Jesus. But whenever humble people came to Jesus, he was always willing. We also find that Jesus healed people in unique ways, sometimes instantly, sometimes progressively. Sometimes while he was there with them, sometimes while he was not with the sick person. But every time we find Jesus willing, he was still willing when people come with humble hearts that believe he will be faithful. As we go forward, this is the key attitude. We need to be humble enough to admit our true need. Then we ask with enough faith to receive. That faith that is required is so small that Jesus said it's like the smallest seed in the garden, the mustard seed. In other words, it's not the amount of faith. It's our willingness to humbly apply that faith with action that counts. This is the key. Humble enough to take action based on his word. But what is the real healing that we need? To understand that, we have to get a little bit of the things that we've seen and heard and read before scrubbed out of our minds. And just try to look at what the Bible tells of us and what, it, what it's saying to us about God and ignore what we think we know. Because artists and religion can often present to us a view of God in creating our race as being remote, eager, but disconnected from us. They show God as being involved, but not really in love with us, not really connected to us. They show man as being independent and even apathetic. But that's not what God tells us in the Bible. 
God tells us something entirely different in his word. And folks, there's nobody alive today that was there to see it. Only God knows what really happened. And he tells us how he created us from the beginning. So let's consider this. The things that we care about the most are the things that we do face to face. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is telling us that God created humanity with love. No other creature on earth was created in God's own image. No other creature was given life by God looking them in the face and breathing life into them. When we consider the beautiful, powerful, and graceful creatures of this earth, we're seeing God's masterful artistry. But when we look at humanity, we see something different, something much more precious to God, so precious that he boasts he created us in his image. So precious, he looked mankind into the face and breathed into us with his very own breath. In humanity, we're seeing creatures that God has loved and has gifted with his own beautiful creative image. We started with his love face to face as with his own kiss. Yes, God was intimate with his creation of mankind. A kiss from heaven was the moment he gave us life. Now we have to think of when a mother gives birth to a child, especially before modern medicine was involved. You see, the very first thing she would do is clear the mouth and the airway of the child and breathe into the child if they don't take their own breath to start. In this way, we can see that God is telling us that it took his own personal loving breath to give us life, like that mother giving birth to a newborn, that newborn breathing in, receiving life for the first time from the mother, that first breath of this life. And what we see is something so precious and so personal in God telling us this. You see, in the face of every newborn child, we see a creature that has God's most personal brand and his own very creative heart imprinted right down into our DNA. Now, by the way, I don't get into a lot of science in, in this show, but this has been proven scientifically, um, but that's another matter for another message. But there is actually a structure within our DNA that has God's fingerprint on it. Now, what we see in humanity is a unique power and ability that is unlike any of God's other creation on this earth. Vibrant, full of energy, full of dynamic potential. And God gave us all of that by giving us life face to face with a loving kiss of his own breath. At the dawn of creation, he breathed into Adam and Eve. That kiss of heaven comes every time a new child breathes their first breath. This is God, once again, breathing into each one of us. Now, one more thing that science has recently discovered, that the Bible has said all along, is that we are created with light. You see, it's been discovered that at the moment of conception, every human being's DNA is fused together with a flash of light. This has been photographed under microscope, and it proves that God's energy is directly and personally involved in every person's forming, even now at the most intimate level. His light is fused into us at the dawning of our own personhood, when all of our genetic potential is formed into being. Then it tells us, by the way, that after God created Adam, he walked with Adam every day. Who knows what all they discussed? But what we know is that the things we care about are the things we make time for. 
God spent time with Adam in the cool of the evening every day, walking with him and teaching him. Beautiful relationship, and all of us yearns for that in our deepest inner creature. This tells us so much about God's care for Adam, for mankind. He was personally involved in a hands-on way creating Adam. You see, Adam simply means man. So when he's talking about Adam in the Bible, he's talking about all of mankind. Adam was our original prototype, as it were. And likewise, he was there creating Eve out of Adam's side. You see, God was personal. He was involved. He was hands-on. He's not disconnected. He's not distant. He's close. He's personal. He's intimate. And God still cares now. God is still at work engaging people even today. This is the message of Jesus. This is his adventure, bringing us to be known and to know God. To be known by God and to know God is the entire point of why Jesus came. Now, perhaps you heard that and thought, look, God may have loved us once, but not anymore, especially not me. My life is too messy. I've done things, thought things, and wanted to do things that would make God hate me. Or, you know, everyone else hates me anyway. Look, many of us have been there. Here's the truth, though. You are not too worthless for God to love. You are not too guilty for God to forgive. You are not too dirty for God to cleanse. You are not too broken for God to heal. And you are definitely not too far for God to reach as long as you have breath in your life still. Yes, it's true. God actually wants you. God still has incredible love for us, despite how truly bad we can be. This is the way of Jesus. Learning to live out this great adventure to be an apprentice of Jesus is truly amazing. But it's not just about fun and fascinations. The name of Jesus has transforming power, power to live a transformed life. Because God didn't just walk with us once. He came in the form of a humble, poor carpenter's son. He came to an oppressed people. He came to walk with us, to know us, and to be known by us, and ultimately to bring us back to himself. He came to restore us to the dynamic, empowered life we were once given. And even better, he came to give us the power to defeat the evil we had been tempted by since the beginning. This gets missed by so many who claim to believe in him. There is power to overcome evil of every kind and to heal the most broken life. Power over sickness, power over the things that cause sickness, and most importantly, the power to heal souls sickened by rebellion against God. Because that's really the ultimate issue. Jesus brought us his power and authority to restore the most broken inner person among us. So many of us have already experienced this. This is the message what we're here for, is to share how many people have experienced healing. Healing of the inner person, healing of their minds and their souls, healing of their emotions, healing of their bodies. You know, a lot of times we tend to only think that healing of the body is the miracle. But the great miracle is actually the healing of the soul. Now, I once saw a woman healed of a broken bone in a church service. She went there to hear a man speak who was not a healer, but rather just someone teaching on how to draw near to God in our walk with Jesus. And the woman had no particular belief that God would heal for her any reason that day. However, the man had spiritual authority. He had the Holy Spirit working through him. And while he was praying, the woman's broken bone was suddenly healed. She didn't go forward or anything. She didn't tell the man she had a broken bone. 
Nobody was praying for her in particular. She merely said in her heart, God, if you're willing, I know you can heal and change my life. And then suddenly God responded to her little amount of faith. Her life has never been the same. Her faith in God has remained strong over many years since that. When we understand the power of God and the willingness of God to heal us, amazing things can happen. And this is really the message of the Jesus adventure is the more we engage with God by following Jesus, the more amazing things we see happen in our lives. But healing bodies is not really significant compared to healing the soul. Healing dead rebellious souls is a far greater miracle, a far more important miracle. Now, becoming an apprentice is a walk. It's a journey. It's, it's a passage. It's a walk that gives us joy. It's a walk that challenges our natural mortal minds. We have to unlearn so much of what we've already learned in this world. Some healing is immediate, some takes time, some comes from learning to overcome other evils. What we need to know is that God is always willing. This is why Jesus came to earth, to redeem his lost creatures and heal the broken who are willing to come to him humbly. He's willing to heal souls, heal hearts and minds, heal bodies when we trust in Jesus. This is the testimony of so many that we've known that God healed and restored them from the ravages of life's brokenness. But how is that possible? Well, Jesus said with God, all things are possible. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, beyond even our ability to understand. Religious people often get confounded by this because they want to control who gets to hear, who gets to receive, who gets to be included, who gets accepted. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus continually rejected that kind of thinking. God is fervently working to reach and heal people every day, even to this very day now. Oh, I know you hadn't heard it that way before, but that's the entire message of the Bible. God wants you. God is for you, and he wants you to know that he loves you. The question is, are you for him? You see, Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to turn back to God. He came to bring the most undeserving people to be in a relationship with him, if we will trust him. When we realize that Jesus came for us, that is, we who are the least worthy, and that he's urgently pleading with us to turn back to God, then we can understand that Jesus is passionate for each and every one of us to receive his very best at our deepest area of need. So it's up to us simply to respond to his offer. It's all about healing and hope. You see, this great adventure of discovering the spirituality of Jesus changes us and grows us and fills our hearts to overflowing with joy. This adventure is a journey of blessing, of peace and power when we do it Jesus' way. This adventure is not just a gift of blessing for you or just for me, but it instantly becomes a blessing through us, through you, through me, to others. At some level or another, no matter who you are or how selfish you may be, you were created to be a blessing to other people. In fact, it's a yearning inside. Everyone was given this yearning, whether we sense it or not. Deep within ourselves, we want to do something that's significant in this world. Now, it often gets warped, it gets tainted by the world's values, and it gets tainted by our sinful nature, but this is the craving we have for our lives, is to do something significant in this world. And what that is, that yearning, is that God put 
something there because he wants to establish us in his generous love so that we become an agent of his love. He wants to give new life so that you can become an agent of his life-giving program. This is the most amazing part. He opens up a fountain of life within us when we open up to him. This is the way of Jesus. This is the mission of the Jesus adventure. If your heart's being touched by Jesus at all, it's natural to want to share this with others. But like most of us, you may find that you're eager somewhat deep inside, but not really empowered. There's a desire, but it's not connecting for you yet. And that's okay, because God will make it connect for you as you begin to learn to walk with Jesus and trust in him. The reason why it may not be connected yet is there's this problem. None of us is qualified to be an agent for God until we've received the inner healing from God first. If we try to go out and do the works of Christ, of healing others, of being healed and restored to God through Jesus, without having had that inner healing first, we'll actually do more harm than good. We can easily actually become agents of God's enemy by doing things through a false form of ministry that leads people away from the true healing that they all need. So God's calling us all to first have our healing from him before we can become agents of healing to others. Now you may think, well, I've, I've put faith in Jesus and I'm wanting to walk with him, so I'm ready to do that. And, and maybe that's true for you, but we need to work through the process that Jesus gives us. All false religion begins when people try to do the works of Christ without first receiving the vital cure from Christ. It would be like a leper trying to cure other people before first being cured themselves. You see, they wouldn't actually do anything but infect other people rather than heal them. Now, most of us, when we begin this journey with Jesus, struggle to really understand why there's a problem. And so we take time at this point to really go through and understand that problem a little more clearly. You see, we all have a disease of treason. That's right. We have committed treason against the Creator. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, people who have their health don't need a doctor. Only those who are sick do. I'm not here to call those who are already in good standing with God. I'm here to call sinners to turn back to him. If you read that and you don't understand what the rest of the Bible says about it, you may get the idea that there are some people that weren't sinners that didn't need Jesus, and that's not the point he was making at all. What he was doing was he was calling every person to deal with their own inner life because every one of us is a sinner. The Bible tells us there is no one good, there is no one righteous, not one. And so Jesus came to redeem us. He came to heal us. He came to bring us into a right standing with God because we need it. And that began at the treason of Adam and Eve. That began from the very beginning. The good news is that God cares about us who have rebelled against him. When Jesus said he had come to call sinners to turn back to God, that includes everyone because we're all rebels according to God. You see, the Bible tells us over and over that there is none righteous, not a single one, since the beginning has ever been righteous. We have all chosen rebellion against God. Now, some of us make it look nicer or more polite or clean than others, but we're all pushing God away. This is why it, it took God to come as a man. The Bible tells us that it was not the woman who sinned, but the man. The woman Eve was deceived, but the man Adam deliberately sinned, deliberately pushed God away, deliberately rebelled, 
casting the entire human race into a state of rebellion against our loving creator. And ever since, we've been committing acts of treason every day against our creator by our own deliberate choices, and we're all pushing him away. You see, we all have this hidden illness of heart and soul that must be healed for us to succeed on the Jesus adventure. Our race has been made sick internally in our spirit being by this disease of treason. In fact, the Bible tells us we're truly spiritually dead from it. All of us believe that it's normal to rebel against God today. And this is something you see in all of our culture. You see it everywhere you go. Um, We actually are proud of it when we do rebellious things. This is the way of, of things today in humanity. Even those who think they're very good, when they're trying to do good, they want to bring attention to themselves and they want to show how good they are. And in doing so, they're still pushing God away. So that even the best of us, it's common to resist God and reject him while doing the very things that we believe he calls us to do. This treasonous rebel heart cannot be fixed by education. It can't be fixed by reformation. It can't be fixed by correction. This treasonous being, this treasonous inner soul of ours must be redeemed and given a new kind of life from God. Unless we have this vital cure, this redeemed new life from God, there is no hope for any one of us. None of us can be right with him apart from that. So over the years, we've seen many who started off looking good, but who never personally experienced the cleansing and healing of the soul that Jesus gives. Sadly, as a result, they do not complete the journey, but become marooned along the way. These people have missed the best parts of the quest because they did not receive the vital cure. This is where religion fails us, folks. This is where the religious people get it wrong. This is, you see, there's nowhere that God has said, nowhere that Jesus ever indicated that we can cure this problem by ourselves. We will discover the reason for that a little more clearly later. But even trying to fix ourselves apart from Jesus, even believing that we could fix ourselves, is an offense to God. It's a huge offense to God. Because if that were possible, then Jesus did not need to come. If that were true, then Jesus' death had no purpose. So for a moment, consider this. If you or I were the only one who needed this vital cure, Jesus said he would have still come. It's that important to him to give us this possibility to receive it. If it's that important to Jesus, then we should really be willing to discover why it's that important to Jesus. Now, a little later on, Jesus healed a man who had been severely crippled and unable to walk. His friends were so convinced that Jesus could heal their friend that they tore open the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching. It's a famous story. Uh, To get their friend in front of him, And what surprised everyone is that Jesus looked at the crippled man who was completely paralyzed and saw his biggest need, which was to have forgiveness for his rebellious heart. As it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you might be wondering why when it was obvious that the man needed to be healed physically. I mean, he's crippled. He's laying there on the floor. He can't do anything. Isn't that the most important thing? is to heal his body. But Jesus sees everything. He knows what matters most, and he saw the man's deepest need, his most serious problem. We need to keep that in mind. The true need is not the healing of the body, but of the spirit and soul. Our bodies are temporary at best. God says our souls are not. 
Our souls live forever. And the real you, the real me, is not body, but soul and spirit. And you see, the thing with it is, is that even though this man was completely paralyzed and unable to do anything that you and I would consider sinful or immoral, he still had a rebel heart. And that's what Jesus saw in his need. Well, the religious guys that were there that saw this totally freaked out, complaining among themselves when they saw it. They knew that only God can forgive sins. Well, guess what? Jesus knew it would upset them. So he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone in the neighborhood knew this guy. They all knew exactly who he was. They knew that he was crippled and knew how long he'd been crippled. Everyone was stunned by the miracle. And the religious guys were even more stunned because Jesus had just called their bluff. You see, they knew their Bibles all right, but they didn't have the power to heal or forgive. So they had nothing they could say to Jesus. He had just demonstrated the power to do both. So the situation left them frustrated out of their minds. But what does this tell us today? Jesus has the power to heal and to forgive our rebellion, our sinful, immoral, unrighteous heart. Our heart that is, by nature, turning away from God. The same for every one of us. And guess what he thinks is the most important? Forgiveness and the healing of our rebellious spirit is more vital than the healing of our bodies. He still cares about the body, but nothing like he cares about our soul and spirit. We really need to think about that, because if it's that important to Jesus, then why, why do we not think of it as important to us? You see, it must be way more important than we can really comprehend. Well, this power to forgive and heal was granted to him by the Father in heaven. And Jesus did miracles then, as today, out of mercy. He did them out of the gracious kindness of God. More importantly, Jesus showed that our spiritual disease is much more harmful than being paralyzed. And those religious guys were spiritually paralyzed, but they couldn't recognize it. This calls us to ask ourselves, am I spiritually paralyzed? Am I a spiritual leper filled with rot, yet unable to feel the terrible soul-scarring and misery caused by my own rebelliousness? There are modern consequences to this ancient rebellion, and we have to be honest with ourselves about it. We lie to ourselves. We don't just lie to others. We lie to ourselves. We justify our rebellion against God. We blame others for the evil in our own hearts. We're trying to convince ourselves and everyone else that our defiant and evil actions are justified. We reject God, and we push him away. Not only do we do things that God calls evil and that offend him, but we do things at a deeper level, internally. And God tells us this internal life that we have is actually what's really sick. And it's scarring us in our soul. It's causing us damage. It's causing us pain, even though we don't necessarily feel it. Things such as lust, to commit adultery or to fornicate, to covet, which is to steal or cheat in our hearts, to lie, which is manipulating and deceiving, 
or hate, which is injuring and murdering somebody. Now, today we have a lot of talk in the public square about hate, hate crimes and, and hate actions and all that. And yet, many times the people who are directly accusing others of hate have hate themselves. And this is the problem. We don't realize, we don't perceive the damage, the scarring of our own souls by hatred, by lies, by cheating, by coveting, by lusting. These things are harmful to us. And it all comes because we reject God himself. We choose to be our own God running away from the Creator, claiming, even boasting, of our own evil attitudes and actions, which scar our souls and destroy our own selves and ultimately destroy this human-led world that we have. Problems of this world are not God's problems. They're our problems. At this point, someone might say, wait, I never killed anybody. But have you ever thought or even possibly said under your breath, you're dead to me? Maybe you've said, I wish you were dead already. I heard somebody say that just the other day. Uh, it was kind of interesting. The funny thing about it is the person who was saying that they wished that this other person was dead already, the reason why they said that was because they accused that other person of having a heart full of hate. How blind can we be to say, I wish this person was dead already, um, and the reason why we want them to be dead is because we accuse them of hate. We have this serious problem. Well, ask yourself this. Have you ever decided to so completely cut a relative out of your life that it's like they're already dead? Maybe you, you cut that relative off and refuse to allow them to be part of your life or to be part of a, a greater group of people's lives because you hated them for some reason. This is a problem we all have. We have this inner treason because this is not the way of God. This is not the way of Jesus. You may also want to ask yourself, have you ever wished or even prayed harm on another person? Have you turned your back on someone who loved you because you found them inconvenient to you? That's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus says it is. From God's perspective, he says this is just as bad as murder. And when God calls us back to himself, back to what is good and right and true, well, we all, every single one of us, reject him. Instead of admitting that our hearts are wrong, we blame, we justify, we try to compare ourselves to someone that we think is worse. And the default is to compare ourselves to, you know, serial killers and tyrants and say, well, I'm not like that. But listen, folks, that's not the standard the standard is Christ. The standard is God himself. And when we think of it that way, we find ourselves in a very, very perilous position because none of us is righteous. None of us is holy. In fact, we can't even imagine how to get to that point. We quickly condemn others for doing evil, but fail to see the evil in our own selves. We often try to justify ourselves. The Bible says that God can see the hearts of every one of us and what he sees is blaming and shaming and attacking others in our hearts for the very things that we do. Jesus was the only truly righteous person who ever lived. He alone is qualified to judge what is right or wrong, what is good or evil in a person. And what we find with Jesus is he is willing to forgive. He is willing to heal. He is willing to restore 
He welcomes us to come to him with our dark hearts. He is willing to forgive and heal them. This is the greatest news ever. He invites us to come exactly as we are so that he can transform us. Jesus sees the most broken part of each one of us, and he wants to heal it. He wants to heal you. Will you, like the crippled man, receive the inner healing? Will you receive his forgiveness? You see, Jesus has the power to forgive if you'll accept it. If you're humble enough to realize that you need it, if you're willing to be put in front of Jesus and simply say, yes, I'll receive that. But you have to be willing to see the true condition. You can't solve this yourself. You need healing from the Creator and the Healer of the soul. And as we ponder that, we'll discover later in this series how God can have both perfect judgment on evil and yet have exceedingly great mercy on those of us who've committed it. His ways are really amazing. Everything that Jesus offers us, ultimately, what he was offering to the crippled man, the forgiveness, the healing he was offering to the leper, all of this comes from the fact that Jesus came to to do something that most people don't understand. I call it the death curse exchange program. And Jesus hints at this in John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous Bible verse of the whole world where he says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what we don't get from that is, what does it mean that he gave his one and only Son? There's so much given us here in this single statement from Jesus that we could study it for days and still miss some of what he's revealing. The essence is, however, that Jesus was given to humanity as an exchange, his ability in exchange for our inability. His perfect life, which is due rewards in exchange for our death curse that we are due because of the destiny of the rebellion that we've lived under, rebelling against our loving creator. Many people recoil when they hear that there's a judgment coming. They just don't think that it could apply to them. I'm going to be very real here with you. God says of humanity, for they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. And as Jesus has pointed out to us, even if we haven't committed that in our bodies, we've committed it in our hearts. It tells us this in Proverbs 4, verse 17. We eat this wickedness. We indulge in evil rebellion like a warm sandwich. We drink violence like it's a juicy glass of wine, drinking it down with joy. You might again say, but I've never done those things. But have you enjoyed watching them? See, the truth is that many people who claim to never do evil enjoy watching it. That's the way of mankind. You say, no, not me. Not you. Are you sure? Have you considered what God says is true and right? Have you considered how easily you do the opposite? See, God says we're gluttons for this rebellious action that he calls sin. Oh, We have favorite sins, and we look down on others who have different favorite sins. But God sees it all and says we eat it like bread. It's natural for us, and we know it. We just don't like facing it. So what is the death curse exchange program? Many people think they know the Jesus story, but they don't really understand it at all. Jesus did not come to teach us how to be nicer people. No, he didn't. He didn't teach us how to be better rebels. He did not come to tell us that we're bad and make us better. You probably didn't hear it that way, but... That's the truth. He did not even come to make us feel ashamed. And I'm going to tell you, most religious people will recoil at what I've just said. They're sure that I'm wrong. 
but I've read the Bible. I'm very clear on it. This is not at all what Jesus came to do. Jesus already knows that we are powerless over these things. He already knows that the death curse has killed the light in our souls and left humanity in darkness. He came to give us his light by taking our darkness in himself. He came to take our brokenness and shame. He came to destroy the death curse that holds us. He came to take our rebel natures on himself and give us his new nature, his God nature, his kind, merciful, joy-filled, faithful nature. He came to take our powerlessness and exchange it for his strength. He came to take our imprisonment and make us free. Jesus came to take our anxiety and give us confident peace. He came to take our rottenness into himself. Jesus came to take our death and exchange it for his perfect, indestructible life. Even though Jesus had never rebelled against God and never considered being a rebel, God caused him, God caused him to be accused and convicted of being a rebel in our place. He did this so that we could become faithful children of God, accepted and received as if we were Jesus himself. In Christianity, we call this the grace of God. That means it's the favor that we did not deserve that has been granted to us because of Jesus. Bear with me here for a minute, because we need to know if this cure is valid. What I've just said to you is a radical concept, and frankly, it should be challenged. So the question is, can we demonstrate proof that this is satisfactory before God, that this is actually what God wants. And we need to know that for an absolute certainty. We can't be guessing around or, or messing around with things like this because the eternal destiny of people is at stake. And if not, if this is not of God, what I'm telling you, we don't have any reason to teach it. If we don't have valid evidence from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that was written before Jesus, before his apprentices gave us the New Testament, if it's not there, then we must question and we must discard what I've just said to you. In fact, if there isn't clear evidence in advance of Jesus that this message was true, then we can rightly question anything about the validity of Jesus' message. So we're going to discuss the preauthorized assurance of the cure, because it tells us that Jesus' death on a Roman cross was not a tragedy. It tells us that it was God's victory plan for our redemption. And it's written there from before Jesus was even born. God told us before it happened that he would be satisfied. So we're going to read, just briefly, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, where he says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So the testimony of Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, is that he must be raised up. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's what Jesus said. And this is leading us to look at what Isaiah said, because Isaiah said he must be raised, he must be lifted up and highly exalted. Well, these words here are very clear to us. These are the three different ways to say that a person can be raised up in some way in the Hebrew language, all three of them in a single statement. And this refers back, what Jesus said, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. It refers back to the time when Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole for everyone to see 
so that they could be healed from the poisonous snake bites by looking to this bronze serpent. This is what happened in the in the desert when they were wandering in the days in the wilderness. And there's some deep symbology here that we could miss if we're not careful. We'll cover that as we go. But here in the book of Isaiah, written over six centuries before Jesus, it also tells us the same thing. And more importantly, it tells us the viewpoint of God the Father about Jesus and what happened on the cross. And that's what we want to know. What is God's perspective in this? In the original Hebrew language of the Bible, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, there are these three words that say raised or lifted up. Here Isaiah uses all three, as I said. And it's like God is boasting to us that at Jesus' crucifixion, he saw how faithful Jesus was in going to the cross. Remember, God spoke this through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. You see, he can do that because God is outside of our time domain. He's from outside of this realm of time that we live in. He literally created time, and so therefore he's not captive within time itself. He's able to tell us in advance of what's going to happen. And as we look at this passage, he goes on to say some very awe-inspiring things. He says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom was the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, that is, for our wrongdoings. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. So here we have, like many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, which is again called the Hebrew Bible, we see this depiction of a person suffering without complaint. And none of his people even spoke up to complain about it. Think about that. I never really thought about that until I, I read this passage many times that even his own disciples didn't protest. That's a strange thing. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. We see here described throughout the New Testament and referring back to this passage of how Jesus fulfilled this. Now, what the rest of the passage goes on to say is what's really key for us to understand because it tells us that God is satisfied with this judgment. Jesus' suffering was not accidental. It was not a tragedy. It was actually a triumphal act on our behalf. 
Check it out. Verse 11 to 13 says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Did you see that? When, when you hear that, does, does it stick with you? It says, God tells us this, that this was done for us, and he is satisfied. He, Jesus, justifies many, bearing their iniquities, that is, their rebellious acts. It says he bore them, he literally carried them in his own body, the sin of many, and made intercession and prayed for. That's what the word intercession means, is he prayed for the transgressors. Well, that's exactly what we see recorded that Jesus did from the cross at his crucifixion. This was his finest hour, God's perfect judgment of sin, and yet also his great mercy revealed at the very same time. And God says it was all accomplished for us. God sees this judgment carried out on Jesus and is satisfied that it provides a redemption for those who have done the iniquities, that is, those who have deliberately committed rebellious acts of sin against God. Jesus carried the weight of judgment for us, which he could do on our behalf because he committed no sins. He never rebelled against the Father. He never even thought about a rebellious act against the Father. So his death could not be for his own sin. This becomes a form of judicial double jeopardy. For those that understand the law about serving prison terms for a crime, if you served a sentence for a crime that you did not commit, you could then commit that crime without being punished further. This was actually made popular in a movie from back in the 90s. Only in this case, Jesus never sinned. And because Jesus never sinned, he can transfer his satisfaction of judgment to those who did commit the crime. This is a radical concept. Jesus is giving away his satisfaction of judgment. And because he's the ancient of days, the son of God, who is from before time, beyond time, meaning he is eternal and almighty, he can give this satisfaction of judgment to any and all mortals who will receive it. This is Jesus' finest hour. He did it to exchange the death curse for you and I, friend. Now, I encourage you to read the full text of Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, 12. It's an entire passage about the crucifixion. And again, it was written by the prophet six centuries before Jesus came along. Ponder what God is saying through the prophet about Jesus and what he accomplished for us. It is truly amazing. And he wants you to receive this exchange. He's giving it away to all who are willing to humble themselves enough to ask. Now, because of all that, this cure that we're offered is a cure that comes from Jesus. God the Father has assigned this work to Jesus to offer this great news, but also to offer the cure itself, the cure of rebellion to any whom Jesus will give it. And God pledges this to us. He will not reject anyone who comes to Jesus and is found in him. Jesus has the power to give true freedom. Jesus has the willingness to give true freedom. His true freedom comes from understanding this truth. And Jesus has pledged to us that he won't reject anyone who humbly comes to him in faith. 
That is the kind of faith that trusts and depends on him, not on us. It's not about the amount of faith you have. Again, Jesus said it's like the smallest seed in the garden. So when we face the truth and we accept our need from God and accept that Jesus is the vital cure given by God, we find the healing and the true freedom God wants for us to receive. And it's in receiving that healing that everything becomes transformed. It's simple, really, but it's hard for prideful people. If you're given to pride, you want to really take this to God and humble yourself and say, I want to understand this more. I want to receive this. I want to be transformed. Because it's the prideful people that struggle with it the worst. Jesus said we have to become like little children to receive it. That means we have to be willing to trust him like a little child will trust their parent. How do we take hold of that freedom? How do we receive it? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus tells us very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're coming through Jesus. And the good news is Jesus welcomes us. He says, I'm willing. So we come to Jesus. That's how. This is what Isaiah the prophet wrote about. We want to understand God has said there multiple ways that he is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. God even boasts. He says, behold my servant. In other words, look carefully to my servant. He is the answer. He is the solution. Remember that it said, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. So we can know that Jesus has the authority from God to do that. When Jesus says, I am the way, he is saying there is no other way. When he says, no one can come to the Father except through me, he is saying that this is an imperative. We can't ignore it. All of life, all of eternity is either secure in Jesus or lost without him. Therefore, we have assurance of two things here. The ones who are taking that way are secure in him. Those who try any other way are forever insecure. They are in effect demanding that they be allowed to face God's perfect holy judgment on their own. There is no other system, no other method, no other justification that will please God. And justification is what we all need. We are rebels. We are traitors and criminals against a holy God. Even the best of us is. And we need a way to be saved. We need a way to be redeemed from the tyranny of the dark authority that has drawn us into this treason against God because we are under that authority without Christ. Now, this word way, when Jesus says, I am the way, again, we've talked about this a little before, but this means passage or journey. And here again, we have Jesus calling us to take the quest, join him on his journey. He's not just saying, I'm the method or I'm the program, but he's saying, I'm the journey. I am the passage. That is the adventure to know the Father. We will spend the rest of this book learning how we get to take hold of this satisfaction of judgment and what all it means for us, because it means so much more than what we can understand at first glance. We have to really dig in and, and search it out to understand everything that's been given to us in the satisfaction of judgment that the Father has given through Jesus. It starts off with letting us personally know the Father and knowing the Father empowers us to live life in a new way, to live life with new purpose, to live life with new power. It literally transforms us. And the most amazing part of it all is it's a wonderful gift from Jesus. Then 
Once we begin to do that, we discover how we keep hold of it and how we use this wonderful gift in our quest to keep growing our spirituality on the Jesus adventure. There are many prizes, many rewards that we discover along the way, which will ultimately end with the greatest treasure, the eternal life with the amazing creator of all life. So what we discover is that this is the cure that cannot be denied. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, it tells us, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, what God is telling us here is that God is eagerly looking through the whole earth, searching for those who will have a contrite heart, a heart that is willing to confess our desperate need for God. He's working always to bring us to his son to revive our lives so that we can be redeemed. That is to say that we can become qualified to be delivered from the penalty and from the tyranny of our rebellion. Again, there is a dark system we're under in this world until we become under the authority of Christ. And so it's coming under Christ's authority that frees us from that dark tyranny. Now, right now, let's look at how exactly God calls us to receive that deliverance, to receive that redemption. We're going to look at Psalm 32. And we want to remember as we read the Psalms, by the way, that the Psalms speak to us in a very practical sense, but they're also speaking to us prophetically in many places. And so it's not simply telling us what was or what is, but what will be. And it's what was, what is, and what will be from the perspective of the writer who wrote it. And God led the writer in Psalm 32 to, to write this. It says, So I confessed my sins and told them all to you. I said, I'll tell the Lord each one of my sins. Then you forgave me and took away my guilt. We worship you, Lord, and we should always pray whenever we find out what, that we have sinned. Then we won't be swept away by a raging flood. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble and put songs in my heart because you have saved me. That's from Psalm 32, verses 5 to 7. So this is a framework to understand how God works to redeem and restore and heal our, our broken souls. It's a good start to acknowledge that you're a sinner, but it goes deeper than that. You see, our rebellious acts, which we call sins, will plague us with regret and shame. And this causes us to dwell on failure, and it empowers the rebel nature to try to justify our evil actions. Well, when we do that, we're saying we don't need God's healing. We're actually rejecting this vital cure of Jesus. And that keeps us in a cycle, a syndrome of continuing to do the very things that we hate. When we confess them to God, acknowledge that we've chosen a rebellious sin, then we kill the sinful pride that led to it in the first place. And this begins to build our ability to overcome the sins that, that we're committing. This allows us to continue to humble ourselves to become contrite. That means to allow our, our spirit to be lowered and accept the peace of God to humble ourselves before him. This is when God revives us with his holy power. He promises that he will do this when we're willing to receive it the way he calls us to, which is through confession. And we do confession the same way that God tells us to pray specifically. We also need to confess specifically. 
But the wonderful news about it is, is that Jesus is the one who is able to take these confessions and cleanse us from them. We don't have to go to a man. We don't have to tell them to some other person. We don't have to confide in anybody. We tell these sins to Jesus. He is our mediator. He is our high priest who takes these things before God on our behalf. And he is the one that offers cleansing and absolution. That's what Isaiah is telling us. It's Jesus that's the high priest that cleanses us of these things. And by doing this, by confessing them specifically, we disempower all of the shame that causes us to keep dwelling on these things. Now, without doing this, we continue to invite the spirit of disobedience to rule our lives. But through confession, humble acknowledgement before God, it's very powerful. It's very cleansing. It's restorative. And the God who inhabits eternity revives us with his eternal strength. That's what he's telling us here in Isaiah 57. He's reviving us with his eternal strength, his eternal perspective, his eternal life. This is what we crave because God created us with an eternal need, an eternal hunger, an eternal depth in our souls that cannot be cured, fixed, or filled any other way. So when we confess, God revives God cures our eternal hunger in the internal man with his very own life, his eternal life. Let's read that again. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He fills that hunger and revives us, gives us energy for life that we can't have when we're caught in the cycles and syndromes of sinful rebellion against him. Well, as we close, we always want to talk about the adventure principle. And the adventure principle here is that Jesus himself is the cure that frees us from everything that keeps me in darkness so that we can be free to praise to be faithful and to love and receive the love of the God who created us. This is so powerful, folks. Jesus isn't just the one who offers the cure. Jesus is the cure. As we close, we want to meditate on this specific verse from Psalm 51. It's uh, verses 1 through 3. And we're reading this from the New American Standard Version. It says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness. According to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my wrongdoings and my sin is continually before me. And as we meditate on that, we want to understand God is willing to be gracious. He is willing. He understands our sinfulness. He understands that we are creatures who are trapped in this tyranny of darkness. And because of his compassion, he wants to wipe out our wrongdoings. He wants to wash us from guilt. He wants to cleanse us from sin. We don't have to beg him. He wants to do it. He's wanting us to be willing for him to do that. And what he asks is that we acknowledge that we have these wrongdoings. We have these rebellious acts, this rebellious heart. And if we are willing to face that, he is always willing to cleanse. Well, thank you for continuing on the Jesus adventure. This is concluding chapter four, the vital cure. 
This is the beginning of section two, The Walk with Jesus, and we encourage you to join us for the rest of this section uh, in chapter five and six.